Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Hello, welcome everybody to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. Allow me to introduce my co-hosts, the Timothy Berners-Lee and Neil deGrasse Tyson, to my Bill Nye, Curtis Wister, and Austin Miner. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. I think you're – I'm I'm worried here. We're getting a little smart with these names. I don't know what's coming here. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I agree. Well, you know, and and I think it'll be apparent to everybody. They'll go at some point in the next minute or so. They'll go, okay, I get it. Yep. Yep. There it is. Absolutely. Well, you know, and and of course, one of the things we, you know, when we sit down with many of our clients, you know, we've been hearing obviously just not, you know, they want to talk to to people with intelligence as we are, but not to that level. But, you know, one of their greatest fears in retirement is needing long-term care services as we age. Right. Right. But I think the hard part is like, as they're asking us, right, is, Hey, what's my long-term care need going to be? Right. But, but we're not medical experts. We don't have the crystal ball to break out to know exactly what people's future is. We don't know when people are going to pass away. Right. We don't know any of that. So, but we do know a little bit about maybe how our immediate family has aged. Right. right? We know what their experience with maybe long-term care has been, but the question I think that gets asked about to us is, is that relevant yeah. for me? Yeah. Right. So as financial advisors, we spend some time with clients thinking through what that experience might have been and using averages, we could estimate what a cost might be. Yeah. So the loss of personal independence due to care needs becomes more likely as you age. And with proper planning, long-term care can be a di- dignified experience, free of burden for the individual, but also their loved ones. And just to give you some statistics about how widely that, um, how important uh, long-term care is in the U.S. alone, 70% of Americans are going to require long-term care. Yeah. 91% of them are going to require their family members to step in and 54% will not be able to afford the 140,000 out-of-pocket cost to pay for the care they need. So with our clients, we can, again, as we said, we can roughly game plan whether our current retirement assets and savings might be enough to support one or two people's long-term care needs. But it's certainly a guess, and it's somewhat rough, and it only discusses the financial component of long-term care. What about the burden of my family? What is their role going to be, and how should they be involved in my aging process? Is it possible to strategize an elder care strategy for each of us individually? So that's exactly what our show is about today, strategizing my elder care journey. That's right, Ben. And like all of our shows, we like to bring in a guest. Um, So our guest today, um, so our guest parents came to the United States, uh, each without a penny to their name. Um, Her dad came from Thailand, where his formerly wealthy family lost it all due to the war. Um, Her mother came from Cambodia, narrowly escaping the Cambodian genocide as a child. Um, Our guest personally grew up in a low socioeconomic community and has been privileged to have helped her parents rise to a middle class through their entrepreneurial endeavors. So our guest has spent four years specializing in molecular genetics and data science at UC Berkeley and did all things technical foundations, including biology, chemistry, physics, data science, computer science, statistics, and linear algebra. She has spent as, the, as one does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, she has spent the last few years pushing for the early adoption of AI in biotech and healthcare. So again, our guest today is an ex-NASA data scientist building the future of financial planning tools for elder care using artificial intelligence, or again, AI. She is the founder of Water Lily Planning, a software that leverages AI to help you personalize your long-term care plans. So with that, please welcome Lily Vitaya Ruxkull to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Lily, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 
Well, Lily, of course, with all of our shows, we want to hear a little bit about you and get to know you a little bit first, right? So want to just kind of hear a little bit about your parents' journey and how that influenced your life and your academic pursuits and why data science? These are really good questions. Um, so I'll, I'll share a little bit more that you probably can't see online or read mm-hmm. online, which is like my dad actually never had an opportunity to pursue higher education. Instead, he actually ended up working day and nights with the smaller businesses that he built together with my mom in order to get my mom through her higher education. And so my mom ended up getting a master's in uh, business. And so that opened up a lot of opportunities to pursue bigger, more strategic, I think, business opportunities um, and really opened my eyes as to how, you know, the right sort of educational path leads to the right um, career path that could lead to more stable wealth, which is seeing that progression of like going from in poverty to, you know, having more stable, um, you know, wealth was really eye opening to me. You know, that made me realize that um, I didn't want to pursue education for the sake of pursuing education, but actually as a way to optimize the career path that I wanted to build for myself. And so I, you know, wasn't interested in data science actually by itself. It was only in a uh, context of another field that I was already fascinated by, which is genetics. So the difficult mm-hmm. thing about genetics before we, you know, we had 23andMe and, and whatnot is that it relied a lot on archaic algorithms um, that no one understood. We were just taught to like, oh, oh, memorize these really complex algorithms to solve for this use case in genetics. And at the same time that I was studying genetics is when data science opened up for the first time, you know, to undergrads at Berkeley. And I just saw this huge opportunity to leverage that big data approach to data science, uh, to genetics. So Hmm. that's, that is very cool. And uh, very excited to talk to you today. This is really neat stuff. So what I wanted to ask you is, so how did your data science background, artificial intelligence and long-term care turn into a business for you? So I was actually fast tracked as a young kid um, into aerospace engineering. Um, so it, I did not at all like build this career path. I think things just happen to you, like life mm-hmm. just happens. So when I was doing my um, internship at JPL, the robotics side of NASA, when I was a teenager, that's when something happened in my family where one of my immediate family members was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so for a little over two years, we had to navigate our own long-term care event where for, um, we, we saw her health drastically, you know, uh, decrease and her room, uh, we had a two-story house. We had to move her room to the first floor, just all like the aspects of taking care of her physically, emotionally, um, and the financial like surprises mimicked a lot of the same devastating effects of families caring for, uh, aging. Uh, loved ones like our aging parents. And so that made me pivot my career from aerospace into healthcare. I kept my technical background in machine learning and AI, pursued that for a little over a decade in the healthcare industry. And I realized that, you know, it's been a little over a decade later and not much has changed for families on this topic. And no one was really looking at it from that more empathetic view. Mm, that's, I appreciate that insight and background. And want to kind of fast forward to today, right, and, and Water Lily. So can you just kind of walk us through Water Lily? Um, how does your software generally work? And what are the plans for you in the future with it? So um, an advisor or an advisor's client today could actually fill out an intake form where we ask a little over two dozen questions about the client. We ask basic demographic questions, basic health, basic financial. Mm-hmm. And about uh, one or two seconds, we actually take that data and run them through our AI models to build out um, these onboarding slides for a client that an advisor can present um, that essentially tells the client their long-term care story, specifically mm-hmm. the cost and care trajectory if and when they were they were to need long-term care. Wow. Well. Lily, I know we're going to go into kind of a lot of things and what your what your software is doing and what it's working on. And really, the the subject of our show today is strategizing our elder care journey, right? Is obviously our team has been beta testing that software, right? So we've been going through it is completely fascinating. We are really, uh, we're really kind of shell shocked with how much it can kind of transform, I think, a lot of these conversations that we're having with our clients today, or even the conversations we've been having on this show, right? We're, you know, we're at this point, we're episode, uh, I think, in the mid 90s here. So 
So let's let's kind of start with some foundational items here. Uh, what are some key motivating factors for engaging in long-term care planning? So long-term care is an extremely common event in retirement um, and extremely expensive and often burdens like children and spouses extensively. And paying for, and what's surprising is that paying more for long-term care today is not necessarily equated to having higher quality of care. You know, if you start planning today, the gist of it is that you actually get a shot of changing those negative outcomes, mm-hmm. any of those outcomes with our software. Gotcha. So, and one thing to be clear is, uh, so this isn't the Trojan horse software to then uh, sell long-term care insurance to Water Lily, right? I like, I, I usually like joke sometimes, so I'll just be very clear. So it doesn't get right. yes. <laughs> yes. Because we don't sell any insurance product on our platform and we don't plan to uh, sell any insurance products. Awesome. So I'm really fascinated to learn more about the data process here. So when we're dealing with clients, it can be a tough thing to talk about because there's so many different variables. So your website talks about using over 500 million data points, I believe. How are you able to draw conclusions from quantitative and qualitative data to create relevant output for end users? So I, I think it helps to, I, I think that's such a great question. It helps to contextualize the data a little bit more, which is those half a billion data points actually refer to individuals that we're currently tracking in retirement today or who have recently passed in retirement. And we know essentially their entire retirement picture, but we purely focus, we mostly focus on, you know, if they went through a long-term care event you know, we have the level of detail of like, you know, which daughter stepped in for how many hours for what physical limitations during, during this time, did their, uh, did they also experience additional hospitalization or nursing home visits? And how did those care needs progress over time? So in other words, we followed that entire multi-year uh, story for almost 50,000 lives of, um, and we have equal representation of demographics across the U.S. in order to minimize bias in our algorithms. Okay. Interest. So you said you follow like real life situations and that's, you're mapping that for data. So yes. how do you ensure that your data is like relevant and up to date as time goes along? So for what it's worth, we don't, we don't go and, and gather this data our, ourselves from like the population directly. Like we don't, you know, create the surveys and we don't have APS directly to these like individuals. We actually have, um, you know, both public and private access to academic institutional data as well as like government institutional data. And we stitch that all together to essentially build out up to 20 years worth of data on any one life that we have. Um, and those mm-hmm. data sources are actively getting updated. Um, multiple times every year, um, actually. So we're, we're always improving that and we're always gathering new data sources today, especially with our upcoming, um, you know, pilots with uh, some enterprises to further build out the fidelity of our uh, data sources. I love that, Lillian. You, you just teed up my next question perfectly. And I really want to get to the, the kind of output here, right? Where you're gathering the data, the data is up to date, right? You have all these sources, all the different data points. I want to know how you're actually able to identify unique costs that then can be personalized for each user, right? We all live in different places. We all have different challenges, right? For example, how are you able to predict that maybe it'll cost me $55,000 annually for in-home caregivers or then another, you know, $1,500 for medical equipment or maybe $7,000 for installation of shower grab bars, right? This is the kind of output we're getting. Kind of, can you speak to kind of how that's happening and how how it's accurate. So I'll share first off the potential of our data, which is we have a massive amount of historical data across home care versus institutional care, what are even healthcare costs and being able to tease that away from like, you know, long-term care costs mm-hmm. and um, associate that with conditions of a particular individual and in their like, you know, care journey. Sure. Um, where we particularly focus on today is um, specializing in care hours and separating family care hours versus professional care hours. And we also ask in our intake form, hey, what is your zip code? Mm. Because knowing where you live has a drastic effect on what that cost of, you know, getting those that those caregiving hours done um, important, as well as what's subsidized by family members, but also what care environment are you going to be in as, you know, you have growing care needs over time. And whether you choose a facility or aging at home, 
and the design of that also drastically affects your cost. And so we gather all the, you know, your facts and your preferences in the, in that, you know, intake form to be able to make essentially the projections of where are you likely going to live? How are family members going to step in for how much and how much care hours are you going to have, um, over your long-term care event, mm-hmm. which all contribute to cost. Yeah. So Lily, um, I think just kind of helpful to maybe give an example. So I, I, in terms of just picking on myself here a little bit, I, so I, of course, went in and used myself, right, is go in and kind of create, uh, go through the survey, answer about uh, things about my family and my history and current family relationships, right? And, and again, I know this is still, there's still a little beta mode happening here, right? So anything I say, I just want to say is like, well, hey, this is just kind of what we're working on today, right? And we're, we're kind of still there. But let's assume Water Lily's in its final form. I've gone through the onboarding process and the survey. And so after that, so here's some of the output I got. I just so people can hear this as an example, I think is helpful, right? That Water Lily assumes that I'm going to need 9,144 hours of care. And the net cost of care is going to be $67,710. The prediction is that I'm 49% likely to need long-term care. And there's a confidence levels that you're giving there, right? So it's 71% confidence of, of that being the, the number. And that I'll likely need long-term care at 81 years of age. And that's a 73% confidence. Mm-hmm. So again, so nine, 9,100 hours of care of a span of six years. Again, uh, highly confident in that, 76%. So what's simply amazing, right, is that you've gone kind of further than just going, well, here's a number, right? Here's here's a dollar amount saved to it, which I kind of feel like as financial advisors is kind of like what we have, right? Is, well, there's some averages and estimates and, and those sorts of things. So you've now gone further than just here's some hours, here's some dollars, but you then mapped out my family's investment in my care, Right. So you're showing that professional services of the 9,100 hours that I'm going to need 3,500 hours of professional care. My wife is going to provide me about 3,500 hours. I'm not going to tell her that part yet. Uh, <laughs> my son's going to provide 1,800 hours and other families going to chip in for another 257 hours. So what's really cool about that, right? Is I could, so then the next step is then we go answer questions about my wife and my, my son and my other family. Like, well, geez, my, my wife, maybe my wife is uh, debilitated, right? Maybe she's a quadriplegic and she can't. She can't take care of me, right? So then I can allocate hours to, well, let's insert another family member or another friend or so we can then start mapping out not just the cost, but it could be, hey, here's kind of how we go through that. So talk to us about mapping out those family roles and how you created Water Lily and why that's important to truly get an accurate picture of our personal care. So simply put, it, it goes back to the data and just like how much it lays out that work for us, which is if we know which daughter stepped in for, um, you know, this particular household who had these demographic information and, and had these diagnoses associated with them, then what we're essentially doing is we're mapping you to historical you know, uh, lives that we've had that look like you and that look like your family, um, your family structure. And how did they go through long-term care and how did family members step in? And so we took all those lives that looked most likely like you. And then we built that regression to the average of like, what is the most likely proportion of hours that your spouse is going to take on or your children or other family members versus a professional? Mm-hmm. Simply put, it's like we're mapping you to, we're not making our own like fancy, uh, algorithm of, of, you know, building this, you know, growth rate of like family involvement, but actually it's the way to explain it to clients is like, we're just mapping you as close as possible to other people that look like you and they've already gone through this. Mm-hmm. This gets really interesting because what we've done is we've opened up uh, some insights that you've never had before. So it's an interesting psychological experiment because now how does that affect your intention with how you want to go about, you know, aging or who do you want to involve? I think it's, it looks different to just let it happen to you versus you now know what's, what's going to happen. And you probably have a uh, opinion on one, what you want to change about it as well. Yeah. And Lily, and I'll, I'll just kind of follow that up is I, I thought was, was the fascinating insight is like, not that you're just doing data and then just saying, okay, well, this is likely your experience in terms of 
financial, which I, I think is the default mode of us as financial advisors is, well, we only care about the money, right? So here's the money and here's how much you have. And let's get the overall out of, out of pocket cost out of this. And now we can work on it and we can build around it and we can talk through it where, you know, kind of going that extra step of, well, we really got to talk about aging process just generally with your entire dynamic because all of a sudden, if somebody can't step in and or things are changing in your family over time of, hey, this might shift more costs or less costs here, right? And how how you're cared for. So it's going to impact the financial part because of, so I thought it was really brilliantly done about kind of inserting that family dynamic and yeah. in, in mapping that relationship out so that I think it, we're just going to get more accuracy with our clients because of that. So it's just, uh, just an, I guess, a highlight. I just wanted to insight. Maybe not a question, but just something that I thought was uh, was well done. No, I appreciate it. I think it's pretty profound how you encapsulated uh, that by yourself about like, wait, Lily, there's all these variables that affect cost, but these, but these are actually much more profound relational conversations uh, to be had with the, the client as well. That just makes our doing our job better or more effective. And I think what what's what's worth seeing is that that it's a very natural thing I think for people to talk about from an estate planning perspective, is they go okay when I die here's the natural power of attorney and executors of my estate and there's like well I can't have this person do this because they're probably not likely to be more inclined to do it or you know we got to keep think about the relationships of people so we're I think we're more okay talking about I want things to happen a certain way when I pass. But we're less likely to talk about how we want things to happen as we age and we maybe lose capacity. Just seems like a weird, I don't know, conversational conflict that happens there. I, I think, um, to be honest, this probably goes to my personal philosophy, like on, on this topic, this, the more fundamental, uh, psychological question I think to solve is just like aging is, is, is actually really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the scary part is the fact that we've associated our sense of identity with being able-bodied and being able to do a lot of things by ourselves as an independent person. And, you know, during that time, we define our identity, uh, our, like who we are by ourselves and build our own families. And once we lose that, physical ability or even cognitive ability, do we still now know, you know, who we are? And so I think a part of solving this problem is being able to look at our trajectory and and start to build out more resiliency about who we are outside of our physical capabilities. And I think that'll make us be more, uh, you know, uh, effective and, and satisfied with the decisions that we make. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's nice for people to have a tool to use to actually enact that as well. Cause I think it's something where they feel like they hit a dead end a lot of times. Right. So, but, but kind of going back to Ben using Ben as an example here a little bit further. So just to help our listeners understand how dynamic the process is here. So uh, using Ben as the example, what happens if uh, say his son gets married and he now has grandkids that he's close to that would chip in for care or what about the opposite? How would you map it out if family moves away or Ben and his wife retire away from their family? What would that look like? So the really cool thing is that this isn't a one and done situation where like if Ben mapped out his trajectory today, his snapshot, we actually do ask like on a yearly basis, if you could just double check your data to see if anything major has changed. Mm-hmm. Because if not, you're now a year later and you're still in the state, that's information to us that may help us build a more accurate snapshot of what your projection is going to look like. So if something changes where we now have a particular grandson of interest that like wants to like step in more or the daughter who is going to be the secondary caregiver that was going to devote 2000 hours. She now is like living much farther away and her personality is such that like it's not obvious to us that she would move closer if that, um, if your need were to arise. And so we want to remove her from the picture and, um, recognize, okay, maybe we're covering that gap with like a grandchildren that we're really close to, at least to the best of my knowledge. Cause I think that's the best we could do is, you know, take into account how our, the most dynamic thing is our relationships. So how are our relationships changing over time and how does that change my care plan and my financial plan? I love that. And as you were explaining that, Lily, I couldn't help but think about kind of our roles here, myself, Ben and Austin. And, 
you know, when we have these conversations with clients, it, it's all I, all I was hearing was how important it is to stay accurate and up to date, right? It's we can map out these financial plans for someone and then five years, a lot can change, right? So it's very important that this is just an ongoing part of your kind of planning process. So I really appreciate that. I want to keep going a step further here. I know part of Ben's uh, example there involved family and caregiving. On a previous show uh, or episode of our show, we had a guest on uh, by the name of Iris Weichler. Um, She was a caregiving expert. So we talked with her about really the emotional weight of taking care of our family, right? Um, The three of us, Ben, myself, and Austin, were located in the state of Maine. And we actually – so in the state of Maine, family caregivers were actually reimbursed for up to $2,000 annually. That's part of a program called Respite for ME, Maine, me. So – and we have a link to an article of of kind of Forbes there that we can probably put in our show notes kind of talking about that program. But – um, so essentially, these family members, right, can get a bit of help, right, with the money, um, with current demographics. Obviously, here in the state of Maine, there are many aging members of our communities that need support. So I guess what I'm getting to, um, Lily, as a question for you, um, can our family structures, how they are today, continue to support our aging population, do you think? I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> I I would say that... Family involvement, uh, I think we're only going to receive more and more pressure to, to have that, um, mm. be inevitable in our care plan, um, because just of limitations in our healthcare system sure. and how many people could actually like, uh, you know, help out. But the hard part is, you know, I think we have a pressure more now than ever before of like, you know, with the, with the strained healthcare system and long-term care systems, uh, whether it's like government or private, sure. um, uh, like we feel this pressure to step in, but our workforce doesn't look the same as it did before where previously it was optional for like, let's just say like, um, you know, of a nuclear, like traditional family for the, for the wife to have to work. Sure. But because of economic conditions today, we like in order to survive, yeah. um, we have to have a dual income household. And so now you have uh, a lot of women entering into the workforce now more than ever before as a requirement, but they still have to take on the caregiving duties of like, if they raise, you know, having children, raising those children, um, trying to grow in their career in order to like, you know, earn enough. But then all of a sudden we have aging parents like right around the corner that we have to take care exactly. of. And so it's like, I think that for um, traditional caregiving structures in the household, I think a lot of women are still very much going to feel the pressure to like have to take care of our in-laws or our own parents and reconcile that with like, how am I going to financially, you know, be okay as well. Mm. So that's, that's the tricky problem we have at hand. Yeah. And Lily, I, I know obviously caregiving is such a, such a big thing. And, you know, you raise a, just a really great point that basically the, some of the deficiencies in the healthcare system just kind of falls to our, our family members and community members to kind of step up and yeah. help out, right? Is that we, you know, there's somebody has to do these things and there's people that need care and the, and these people that we love and we want to take care of and we want to, we want to help out and we don't want to see them struggle. But, um, you know, one, one thing that, um, we had an episode way back, it feels like at yeah. this point, 60 episodes ago, Dr. Sarah Zeff Geber. So, she t- we talked about solo aging is that there's uh, there's a growing population of people they've been married but they don't have any kids right so they've taken care of their parents right but they go who's going to take care of me and she really talked about that that was a really big concern for her in solo agers was hey i'm you know to what you just raised as a point of it falls on people in my network to take care of me as I age, as I'm uh, not able to do so. So, but I don't have family to then rely on at all. So I have to then reinvent in my network over time and continue to reinvent in future generations of friends to ask them to help out and advocate for me because no one else is able to do it. Mm. Right. So my question is, how would you think about Water Lily here and your software counseling? And again, our roles as, as advisors using this software to counsel that population to think about their long term care needs if they don't have family to assist them. 
So in terms of immediate family members, we definitely take that into account. So in the initial intake form, we ask if you have a spouse or a partner and if you have children. And if you respond no to any of those, we actually pull that into our um, you know, predictions of like what are similar client profiles such as yours, where they also did not have a spouse or a partner and they did not have children. And so what we map out in your um, family or in your support structure then for any family involvement is that a smaller subset would then just fall on other family members. So this could be, you know, a younger brother. It could be your, you know, it could be your niece, your nephew. Like, I don't want to discount the fact that there are sometimes family members that you are close to that aren't just your traditional immediate family. Um, and so we encompass that in other family members. But then you're right, a large portion of that ends up falling on professional care services. So we show that, you know, um, we show how much of those care hours get shifted to professional caregiving, which also then, um, you know, automatically uh, is associated with higher costs of care. I think also uh, I'll share an example, like my, my, my partner's grandma, which I have a really great relationship with her and I really love her. She is um, widowed. And what she done is I think where I see a lot of uh, single individuals going, which is she lives in a community actually. Mm-hmm. And you're right. She's built out all of her friendships over time where, you know, she's in her eighties. She has friends who are nineties or in their seventies and they're all very close knit with each other. They have like book club and they look out for one another. And if so, if one of them's like really depressed, she's going to go to their door and like, you know, bake, uh, like give her some pastries or cookies and check in on her. And I think that that's such a wonderful form of, you know, support actually. And like the community is like, you actually all live together. And my grandma, uh, my, my partner's grandma has also, she's also actively, um, put together her care plan of just like, you know, I already have, um, the, these are my advanced directives. And I started looking into like independent living or assisted living, or um, that could also cover like nursing home. And like, this is what I'm looking for. She actively has those conversations as well. And she lets everyone around her know, these are my like wishes. And these are my preferences. I want to go to this specific facility. And it's that level of, I think, direction that not only gets really precise about what the costs are going to be, but also gets really, uh, you know, um, we get really confident about what are her supports, you know, in place. And she's like designed that. So that's just like separate from our predictions. It's just how do you go about building your care plan after those predictions to just make more educated and informed um, decisions. So like, that, that brings up a kind of a really important point. And I, I just, I think about our financial planning process and just using this as a parallel to it, right. Is to say, okay, so, you know, as we're going down a road with somebody and we're 20 years in and we can go, geez, this is what we spent and this is where we are and this is where we have left to go. And I'm just thinking about that of like my father-in-law just had a medical event, ended up in the hospital, right? And got care and he's, you know, you see good recovery. Everything's going to be fine. But uh, I'm just thinking about, so say we sit down with, with him as a client and we go, okay, so we update maybe those sorts of events to you. How would that change, right? So it's like, so we did the initial onboarding and we go, I've had a medical, the clients had a medical event, right? And it's, they no longer have an organ or whatever happened there. How does, is that going to change kind of, so if we're updating this continually with you and we're going with Water Lily, is that going to then go, okay, well then based on this, you know, we had confidence you were going to have, 9,000 hours of, of, uh, of long-term care. But now based on this knowledge, more likely you're going to need 12,000 or 5,000. How, how does that change over time in terms of the client journey? So I, I think it's in a nutshell, it's, it's similar to just like what your new snapshot of what your health looks like. We then look at you know, people who look like you that went through those diagnoses and also those events as well. And how did their long-term care event play out? Because we have so many, you know, lives in our data center and, and it's only growing. That's just building our confidence on like, okay, like this is how it's going to change what you're uh, like, what the projected long-term care event's going to look like for you. So you're right. It might actually mean, you know, 5,000 hours because it looks like you are going through these acute things faster than we expected, which might mean like accelerating through, you know, having more and more care needs faster. Or it might actually mean that like, Hey, you know, we noticed that someone when they had an initial like uh scare or like surgery in their fifties or sixties, all of a sudden 
they did certain things that like to make themselves more stable and healthier and then health is more top of mind for them now. And so that means they have like, you know, better behaviors. It's just, there's all these subtleties that we try to capture in the intake form. And that's why we don't just ask, tell us your health condition. Okay. It's, you know, here's your outcome. Mm-hmm. It's more about like, who do we think, uh, like, um, like, who are you? Like, who are you really both? And just like, um, externally, how you identify things that you've been through your financial picture, which gives us a sense of your socioeconomic status, you know, in what region to really, um, try our best at understanding like the unique predictive variables about you and, and try to give you that as, uh, as insights. I don't know if that was a clear answer. No, I, I think it is because yeah. I think where, where we're trying to go is, Hey, we're, we're on a path and we were, you know, again, we're strategizing the journey. We're not just strategizing the first step, right? Is, Hey, we're 88 and, uh, and here we're having acute medical issues very routinely. And what is it? What does it look like for me kind of going forward? And, you know, maybe I, you know, based on where I am, it's just helpful to then understand this in terms of a affordability, but also my care plan and who's available to me. Cause what if uh, my spouse has predeceased me at this stage? And now I was planning on that, that role, that caregiver giving me those hours. And now that's not there. And I have to readjust the whole thing. And maybe people are, as you said before, maybe people can't do those roles. So it's just re-strategizing continually is what, what I'm hearing you say. Well, exactly. And I think we're, we're actively getting more information on this, like right now, where we have upcoming uh, pilots next quarter, where it's actually focused on, you know, populations that are going through care right now and how could they potentially use our software to re-strategize, you know, how they're leveraging their financial resources, you know, what, how are they leveraging their current upfront, like, you know, family caregiving resources versus how can we spread that over time? Or how can we recognize, wait, if the daughter's going to spend 5,000 hours on my care, uh, that seems like too much for her. And she's also verbally saying, this is too much for me. Yeah. Then we can use our caregiver assessment of, of, of just saying, Hey, objectively, who else in the family should we identify as potential caregivers? Let's go through the assessments and figure out whether or not they even be a good fit to then have a conversation about spreading those family caregiving hours amongst more individuals. So we're in a really interesting time in which if we tell someone their projections, how is that going to illuminate back to us what someone's preferences are, what someone's motivations are and their psychological profile. And I think that'll further help us better guide more precise projections of like, we think you want to actually go in this direction versus this other direction. Is that mm-hmm. true? Um, things yeah. like that. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted to zoom back out a little bit. So obviously there's a, a huge, I love this software, by the way, I think it's such a useful tool for so many different age ranges, right? So Obviously, the focus turns towards long-term care as you're 50, 60, 70 aging. But I think it, as we saw with Ben's example, it's a really valuable thing for younger people to be utilizing as well, right? So with that being said, we're looking at the future of long-term care, specifically in the U.S. How do you see the future of long-term care evolving? And are other countries' models influencing how the U.S. is caring for its citizens? That's a really fascinating question, right? So I will share it's like the, the aging, uh, innovation landscape is drastically changing, you know, right now. Um, for what it's worth, I think government is stepping in more now than it ever has been before into making sure that their popul, like the population is prepared for long-term care. Like, for example, there's a lot of state mandates that are like slowly unrolling with Washington starting first and requiring either you pay, um, a payroll tax or you purchase a form of like long-term care coverage. I think there's like some caveats on like implementation, of course, but, um, but California is fast along that. And there's a few other states where it's going to be a mandate to actually have some level of coverage to ensure that like financially we're somehow getting prepared for that. I don't have an opinion on if it's going to be beneficial or not. I think it's always based off of edu- like, you know, execution. There's also, um, 
across each state. Like, you know, we have our Medicaid programs um, as well and our Medicare Advantage like programs where there is now this stronger emphasis on LTSS, which is like, like the long, like the long-term, you know, care, like support systems. And so they're actually coming up like the program you just talked like that was just shared about, oh, you know, in our particular state, you know, uh, family caregivers are actually getting compensated by, you know, the art by Maine to take care of like aging family members. I think, you know, innovative measures like those are only going to increase, you know, today on the state, um, like from the state, they're actively looking for ways to better manage the aging population from a, I guess, like private industry standpoint. I, I speak to a lot of founders like myself who are in the elder care space or in like the elder care, like financial services space. And we recently had um, a fascinating conversation that was organized by one of my investors. And uh, he asked like, you know, outside of what you're doing, just like, if you had unlimited time and money in the world, like what would you work on for, for this, you know, space? And the most interesting question, the most interesting answers were people that said, I want to build communities that mimic blue zones across the world. So um, more specifically, like, you know, really focused, focusing on a sense of community, reducing loneliness, you know, uh, like eating better, like factors that we've seen across the world where people are living a lot longer than, you know, our average life expecting to, up to like what we call the centenari- centenarians. I might be pronouncing mm-hmm. them wrong, mm-hmm. but people who live above a hundred, like what are they doing, you know, across yeah. the world that allows them to live to a hundred. And so a lot of us entrepreneurs are really fascinated by that. And we're trying to see how can we build, you know, mimic that sort of blue zone um, as a way of promoting, not just extending up to a hundred, but like also creating higher quality of life at the same time. So I, I see all sorts of ideas more in, in spirit of, you know, a blue zone. Yeah. And, and Lily, I think that's, that's really fascinating because um, MIT age lab, uh, I know they, they have their own kind of research that they're having. And we had a, we had a gentleman come on from Hartford funds and they have a good partnership with MIT age lab. And, and that's kind of what we were talking about was, I think not necessarily blue zones, but they're saying how really a lot of successful um, folks as they age, that they were really being successful around college campuses, right? Is because you get multi-generational um, populations there, right? So it's not just, here's my gated retirement community and we're all the same age and we all age together and we reinvest in other people that are, are of similar ilks. It's it's like, well, no, that when there's activity, there's um, there's usually, there's, things like sports or academic things or theater or there's things to do and there's free access to health uh, healthcare typically or there's access to healthcare typically there's access to athleticism and gyms and things like that that can go on walking trails and tracks and things like it's kind of like that was that was kind of a, a takeaway that we thought was pretty fascinating is like hey that actually was uh, attracting more you think it was attracting college students it was attracting retirees uh, as a fascinating things but 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 Lily, I, I want to ask a, a, another question here, and I, I know it's a little impromptu, and but we talk a, a lot about kind of the journey, and I know kind of for us as advisors, right, and I know we're interacting with your software here, and the question I think that then is being asked of us, so I, I thought I'd just ask you a similar question then, is, okay, so the question is being asked of us from our clients is, Okay, well, then if I know how many hours and I know what the investment in my family is going to be, how should I pay for these services is a, is a question, right? So, you know, because you, you talked about uh, Medicare Advantage, you talked about Medicaid, uh, obviously, there's long term care insurance, we kind of joked about you're not selling and neither are we. <laughs> But, but there, there's lots of different ways for either out of pocket to all these different avenues here. And I just want to get your take on that and not just not going into anything specific, but just generally like what, how, I guess how you'd want the advisor community like us to interact with your software to then make those recommendations. So we're actually in the midst of developing this internally, which is more the financial planning aspects of, of the software. So I, I, I'm, I'm really glad that, um, you all find the current software useful. We're massively improving it right now, um, to solve for a lot of the advisors' key pain points where the first one is like, okay, if I know the cost, 
And the client's just like, so what are we going to do about that? Sure. And the main, main point is like the client does not re- can't like they're having trouble. Like they oftentimes have trouble understanding what is the difference between self-funding, partially insuring or fully insuring, just like as three fundamental concepts and get them to make a decision on like one concept to go with. So the way we solve for that is we've actually built out this financial calculator that once you know what that cost is going to be, we then have these basic, basic fields, and I'd love to get your feedback on it, like probably at another time. Mm-hmm. Um, a basic, basic fields around like self-funding of just like, you know, how much have you out, like how much have you set aside for like long-term care today? And the advisor gets to decide what is that ARR on self-funding vehicles, like whatever you want to put in here. Then we tell you what the, we just calculate what is expected monthly contribution um, over the period of time up until their care age that they're going to need to put in to cover their cost of care at the time, at the age in which they're going to start needing care. And so we share, we then calculate what is that total uh, principal investment that you're going to be making. So that's a dollar amount to focus on, which is like how much you're going to invest today. And then if you added a policy of any sort, I don't care if it's life with a writer or hybrid or traditional, we just ask basically, what is that total benefit amount? And what is um, that monthly contribution rate? Because then we understand, okay, if the coverage is 350 and your long-term care is going to cost 700K, we just automatically cover the rest through the self-funding and we show you the new principal total. Yeah. Um, and, and so all a client I think needs to understand is like, how does your principal change as you consider different methods? And the advisor could potentially talk to them about, you know, outside of the the quantitative number, what is the qualitative differences of going with one versus the other, which I can't speak to, but someone might prefer to be more liquid today than, Mm -hmm. you know, later on or things that you could talk to them about. But we focus on one single number to simplify that financial story so that they could decide, oh, well, you know, I prefer to be more liquid today. So I think a partial insurance route generally makes the most sense. That I think will take an advisor so much farther than there are today, which Immediately, the only solutions are, here are these policies. Here's the illustration for them, which are very hard to understand. And where we're going past from there is like, okay, we helped an advisor potentially help a client make a decision today on what method. But a client might still say, well, okay, great. I'm going to partial insure, but I'm going to wait five years. I'm going to wait 10 years. Like We're on the same page. I just want to focus on this later. And so we actually have a toggle. For the time value of money, where if, if we said, okay, if you want to start five years from now or 10 years from now, how does that change the total principle you need to invest if you started mm-hmm. then? Yeah. And it's drastically higher and people don't recognize that. And so we're just, we're just building the visualizations of calculators that already exist so that the advisor can solve for the client wants to make a financial decision now and they know the type of financial decision. Now it's just on the advisor on what specific um, individual vehicles do you now pick to, to align with that strategy? And so, um, in our new form of our client profile, we're actually opening up the dynamic expense graph and we're allowing you to put in individual like vehicles. So that if you put in a policy, it might have a max benefit amount of $250 a day. So we could tell you through the expense graph that like, Hey, it's going to cover up to these four years out of these six years. And then you have this extra gap of like, we're maxed out at this like max daily coverage and we've mm-hmm. taken into account your overall max benefit. You haven't hit it yet. Yeah. The rest of that, how does that get covered through some self-funding vehicles? I'm going to go ahead and uh, just pull up my calendar so we can book another uh, episode of this show <laughs> when that ca- calculator's out and we can go through it with everyone. I think speaking for Ben and Austin, um, that just sounds incredible. And I think something that's in- would be incredibly useful. Lily, I want to just take a second. So we've kind of reached the end of our conversation. So I first just want to thank you again for coming on our show, sharing your expertise, sharing your your software with us, letting us dive into it and really show people what's out there. Um, I do have one final question for you. Um, I hope you've got your, your kind of crystal ball out, if you will. So the name of our show, right, the Retirement Success in Maine podcast we like to ask all of our guests, how are you personally going to find or define your personal retirement success? How am I going to def- define or, or find? Yeah, I guess either one, right? What what do you see as being a, a successful retirement for yourself? I think it's... I honestly think it's an active learning uh, journey to, to, to define what my personal retirement success is going to. And I think it's, it's, I am learning. uh, I think it's going to change as I learn so much from talking to advisors like yourself, like following, you know, your podcast where there's just all these new kind of, 
concepts of, you know, setting up your goals for retirement Mm -hmm. or, you know, what are some important financial strategies that you should be aware of? Because I I think we're now in this era of like technology and access to information where I'm, I, I think I just want to use that to better consult with, you know, financial professionals about like, what should I do next? Like it it shouldn't just be them telling me what to do, but I think we're now in an era of how can we, how can I get empowered with the topics to then want to bring up with um, any financial professionals or for me to do, you know, myself. So I think that's how I would find personal finance, like uh, retirement success is actively learning and finding the right influencers in this space that know what they're talking about are always trying to learn themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really nice way to stay on top of, you know, our, our, our method. And in, in defining it, I, I think that's just like you, I love that you have conversations with your clients because I think it really is all about just you know, really having a really good sense of who I am, what are my values and recalibrating like, you know, financially, like, do I have enough for my goals um, actually in retirement? I think that's going to change. You know, I I should have them today so that I could, you know, know how to invest appropriately. But then 10 years from now, it's probably going to change. But as I mentioned, it's better to make financial decisions today to the best of your ability versus waiting five or 10 years out because that could be so much more expensive to do and, and way less affordable, actually. Absolutely. Well, well, Lee, thank you so much for coming on our show. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I know, I know you're, you're well on your journey in terms of, you know, you're shaping the, the financial services industry. Um, we thank you for that. You know, you're, you're shaping not only us, but our careers and our clients. Um, so keep going. We're cheering for you. We want your, uh, company to be a success. Keep us in the loop. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, of course. This has been a pleasure. I think Ben, Austin, uh, Curtis, it was a pleasure to meet you all and, and wonderful questions, um, as well. And, and I think that if I was a new person like listening and I was just like, wow, these are really ins- insightful to just get that precursor into the space. And, and also I, I, I love, it also shows me just how much you, you all care about being on top of your financial planning game. So it's been amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate so much. Thank you. All right. Be well. Well, I can say we had a lot of fun talking to Lily Vatai Ruskell today. I mean, it was, you know, just talking about her background. You can tell yeah. just the, the the intelligence coming through and uh, obviously what she knows about a space. And, uh, you know, basically, you're just a NASA scientist as a teenager, right? I mean, yeah, I can't put I that on my resume. I on that for a minute, too, by the way. We might have to have her back because she, she quickly threw in that she interned for NASA as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. it's just like working for NASA, you know, <laughs> just in my teens, you know? No big deal. I mean, I can say I, you know, I wasn't a NASA uh, scientist <laughs> as a as a not. teenager, but exactly. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but yeah, it just you just kind of I think very impressive of a background, impressive what she's working on today. You can just tell she's um, uh, she has a lot of momentum behind her and yeah. making an impact in this long-term care space. Um, and I know that's just an area that it's going to impact all of us. And as we talked in our intro, it's just, it's just a large percentage of us are, are, are going to kind of have, are going to be in that position. So here's somebody that's coming up with a really great way to plan for, for that, uh, uh, those events and helping our advisory committee on, on trying to create solutions. So, uh, we are going to have a, Actually, some more information about Lily and uh, in her company, Water Lily, um, on our website. So you can go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash 95 for episode 95. Uh, Find some more information there. Um, Have our transcript and some links uh, to the show. But we really appreciate everybody tuning in. I know we went a little technical uh, here and there. (laughs) But thanks thanks to you all for uh, tuning in and staying with us. And we'll see you on episode 96. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. 
Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.